This is episode 12 of Hoop Dreams. On today's episode, I am sad to announce, as you guys all know, that The Last Dance is officially over. Episodes 9 and 10 completed the documentary last night. And what a documentary that it was. I think it was what everybody expected. One of the best documentaries of all time, in my opinion. Steve and I dissect the documentary, break it down, what we liked, what we disliked, what we took away from the documentary, and kind of debate whether the Bulls have won another championship had they stuck together in the 98-99 lockout season. So sit back, stay tuned. It's going to be a great episode. Let's go. is Mark and Steve from Hoop Dreams, back with another podcast episode for you guys. Uh, this is episode 12. Uh, we are streaming live right now um, on a few platforms around Twitter, um, Facebook, um, and Sportscaster. Um, if you guys are tuning in, uh, definitely join in, uh, comment, and uh, let us know what you guys think uh, You know, on the topics and stuff at hand that we're going to be debating soon. Um, I do want to start the show off um, with an apology. I, I do want to start it off with an apology to Steve. I took two L's yesterday. Yeah, and I'm, I'm coming out. I took two L's yesterday. I'm coming out as a man, and I'm admitting it. I'm, I admit when I'm wrong. So the two L's that I did take yesterday was John Stockton was in the last dance. Right, It was Carl Malone who wasn't in it, so I was wrong on that. I had said that Stockton had said that he didn't want to be part of a puff piece, um, but clearly that was untrue, so who knows where I heard that from. Um, Exactly. And then the other one was, if you guys didn't tune in yesterday, me and Steve had a little debate and we had a little video of uh, myself and him going over the uh, Bulls. And if they would have won uh, eight championships in a row, had Jordan not retired that first time and comes out, I'm scrolling through Twitter later on after that. And I come across an article from from MJ himself saying that it would have just took a toll on him. Uh, and even him, he himself thinks that that probably wouldn't have happened. So uh, I'd have to say that's a, probably another win for you, Steve. What do you think? I'm just here just trying to do my best version of myself <laughs> for you and the fans. You know, I just hope that, you know. I was just man enough to admit it. I seen I was wrong. I had to come out, come on live and, and let everybody know I was wrong. Well, the Stockton thing was like kind of over the top. Like I told you, he was like, I don't want a puff piece. And they said that this isn't a puff piece. So I knew he was there. I was waiting for him to come out. I was just happy that we got his nice face in the first 15 minutes of that episode because you know yeah I just wanted to put that to rest <laughs> little victories i'm all about little victories mark i hear you awesome so we are starting out we're obviously going to go over uh, the last dance so uh, final episodes uh were last night and it did not disappoint like we all thought uh, we knew it was going to be great um and that's exactly what it was so it started out um pacers series eastern conference finals um, going through that series, and that was a hard fought, fought series. Even 
Jordan himself um, and all those guys saying that the Pacers were the toughest team that they played and probably tested them the most throughout their run uh, to those six championships. Um, and, and we saw that during that, that finals, uh, I mean, Easter conference final series, um, Reggie Miller even came out and said he thought the bulls were vulnerable. Um, he wanted to be the one uh, to retire uh, MJ um, and it went down to seven games. And even in that seventh game, Steve, we saw that it wasn't a cakewalk and the bulls were down. I believe it was double digits with like seven minutes left in the fourth quarter. Um, but they, they found a way to rally around uh, their team and win. Well, I, I know we talked about the other day. We we didn't include Jalen uh, Rose on that roster, but I think we went down. We didn't. Uh, they had Mark Jackson, Reggie Miller, Chris Mullins, Rick Smiths. They had the Davis um, brothers. The Davis Antonio brothers. Aaron, huh? Aaron McKee. They Aaron, Aaron McKee, McKee. Travis Best. That team was a really good team, and they were coached by Larry Bird. Um, I think each team held serve on their own court all four games, correct? Or, or, or for every game. I believe it went two games yep. uh, back and then went to Indiana, and then Reggie hit that big shot. Yeah, big uh, game. Game four, Reggie hit that big shot because um, he knew um, they had a chance to go. They'd be down three one if he didn't make that shot in game four. That's the the push off shot, and then the the, uh, the crazy spin three sixty dance after he was yep. done jumping up and, and down. Then we we saw what the big factor in that series was. It was actually the rebounding. Um, Indiana came out game seven. I believe you said they they jumped out to lead. They actually started the game eight for eight. They jumped out to a fourteen point lead right off the bat. I believe it was 26 12 or something stupid and then the bulls slowly got back into it but the biggest factor in that game was at one point um it was the bulls had 20 offensive rebounds to two and that's where they yep. kind of just dominated that game they grinded that game down i do have to ask that game came down to a jump ball between jordan and, and rick smith rick smith rick smith's gonna win that jump ball and i, I mean he kind of did he just like i mean jordan technically won the yeah, exactly. Like the Bulls got possession of it, so that goes down as a jump ball win for MJ in that situation. But I mean, Rick's MJ's hand was nowhere near the ball. Rick Smith clearly batted it, and it was uh, right, it was right kind of a que- it was kind of a questionable jump ball too. I'm just saying, like, I like didn't from the ref, like like the, the, wait for him throwing it up. Oh no, no, the tie up was questionable. Yeah, it was a quick. I don't whistle. think that was a. T- I don't think that was a tie up. No, no, it wasn't. <laughs> yeah, I think Jordan had like one arm in there, and but it was like for a second that was. As yeah. soon as they did, they called they called the jump ball right away. So, um, yep, and then the tip out came, and then uh, Kerr hit the big tying three, and they even said it at that point. I think Joe and Rose was the one that was out commentating. He said that we basically played like a a junior varsity squad for the uh, the rest of that game. Like electricity just filled the arena, and then they just didn't have an answer. And that's where that championship DNA just came in, and and they they put them away. It was a great series. It definitely was the one that tested, but. There was an X factor in the series that, once again, uh, no one was aware of, and it was that uh, Jordan's uh, security guard, a.k.a. slash father figure, Gus Lett, actually made his first appearance after battling through chemo mm-hmm. uh, with, I think it was leukemia? Or was it leukemia. I think it was leukemia. It was leukemia. And, uh, and that actually was a great story um, because he was the guy that kind of took over that father figure role after uh, Jordan's father passed away and we kind of got to learn about him. We already knew about the other security guard uh, with the gambling, uh, the one with the white hair. I believe he did the, he did the Clyde Drexler thing earlier. He did the shrug, right? He beat but him we, in some we, coin toss game that they were playing against the wall. But it was just like another humility, uh, uh, one of those moments where you got to really see the other side of Jordan, um, the emotional side, the people that really closely affected him and kind of got him over the hump. 
that guy basically became the father figure, went with him everywhere, was his protector. I think, I think Ahmad Rashad did a good job of describing uh, what that guy did to him. We yeah. got to meet his wife, so we, we knew that uh, when Michael was going through the issues with his father, like that guy was always going there t- during the middle of the night to be with him. Yeah, he'd actually and go then, visit him, not just talk to him on the phone. Yep, and, and obviously that favor was returned when, when Gus got his diagnosis. Michael took care of all his medical bills for him, mm-hmm. uh, made sure that he was in the best shape that he possibly could be. And then that guy showing up to game seven was obviously a huge lift for him uh, emotionally. Yeah, it was huge. Um, and he, he definitely needed him there. He had, like they were saying in the documentary, he always wanted Gus around. Um, he was one of his, his best friends, like you said, a father figure. And that definitely, I believe, played a huge part um, in that in that game. And and even from the get-go, too, is Michael's mindset was where winning this game. Like, he even guaranteed a uh, win in Game 7 in the, in the press conference before he said, you know, we will win Game 7. And you don't see many athletes guaranteeing wins uh, these days. Um, and even Phil Jackson had, had in the back of his mind, I, I think he knew they were going to win, but pregame he was getting them prepared to say, hey, guys, like, you guys could lose this game. You have to be okay with the fact that there is a chance that you, that you could lose. And, and Michael – um said Phil we're gonna win this game <laughs> we're not losing this game there's no way so he was very confident in that him his guy like you said his guy Gus being there played a part in it and um you know they go on to win and like you had mentioned Steve Kerr hit that big three to tie it and he kind of a segue into the next thing you know it got into um it got into kind of Michael and Steve's relationship again um with uh Steve and, and I didn't know this but they kind of had a connection as far as both of their fathers uh, passing and kind of how they passed. Um, Steve's father uh, was a professor. I believe he was at UCLA to start. Um, and that's how Steve kind of fell in love with the game of basketball. He went to games at Pauley Pavilion. Uh, wasn't really highly recruited. Uh, he had one offer to Arizona, um, like right at the last second. He just took it without even a visit to the school. So while he's in college, his dad goes away. And um, he goes to a country where uh, Americans are just not um, they're not like they're under the war was going on and um, the beliefs that Americans had weren't the beliefs of what, what the people there believed in. And and unfortunately, he's he gets into a bad situation of two people posing as students. Um, and he was actually shot, you know, in the head, which was just a crazy story to hear. Like, I never I never heard that. I never knew that Jordan and Steve kind of had that connection with how their fathers were, were kind of murdered and everything like that. And that's one of the biggest things that kind of took me by surprise with that episode yesterday. Well, yeah, that was a great thing. Uh, it really kind of brought more light uh, into the Steve Kerr character. Obviously, the connection with the fathers. Now, they did, he did say that they never actually had a conversation about one another's fathers while they were playing together. So, What's up, Mark? Thanks for tuning in, man. So he, he, they went to Beirut. Um, and like you said, like there was a lot of animosity, especially with Americans over there. It was an unfortunate assassination attempt. And like you said, Steve was away at that time. He was actually attending Arizona University. And the one thing I learned about that was through that event, you kind of saw like how some of these guys take things that they do and use it as like a way to get away. Like Steve said that he went back to his normal schedule. He was back on the basketball court the next day. And, And a story that I was like reading today was they played a... They played their uh, one of their foes, Arizona State, and mm-hmm. he was getting it from like the fans about his father's death. Like thirty minutes before, they were chanting horrible things at him about that, and 
he said like it rattled him, but for 30 minutes prior to the game, like he got into a better mindset, was able to get through it. And I think he actually came out, went six for six from three, scored 21. And things like that kind of carry you, right? Like, and what you brought up the most was he attended the early 70s UCLA games, which was coached by John Wooden, which yeah. had that historic Bill run. Wooden had the that crazy, the the Bill Walton teams, I believe they won four straight championships yeah. that year. And being around that, and you'll know that even as a father with your son, like exposing them to certain things, like whether it's just one-on-one playing basketball or then putting them in a great, like one day you're going to be, I promise you, you're going to be able to bring Harry to a Celtics game. You know, Dude, Even now when I take Harrison to like, you know, my son will go to games, we'll go to um, the University of Rhode Island or Providence College, we'll go to see those games. And all the kid wants to do is just sit there. And he's absolutely in love with how the players are so athletic, how they can jump, how they can dunk, um, running up and down the court, just everything, how they can dribble the ball. They're making three-pointers from far away. He's just so amazed with the game of basketball, and he absolutely loves it. And he's taken a liking to it at such a young age, which is just for me, for somebody who's played basketball his whole life, it's like I couldn't have dreamed of anything better than that. Yep, and things like that continue as a child. And obviously – him being able to build that pedigree, not only with the game, but being able to build that bond with his father, like that kind of carried him all the way up. And, and it, it is, it does suck because like, obviously you wish that things like that wouldn't happen and yeah. he would have been able to enjoy more of Steve's career. Mm-hmm. But yeah. yeah, it was definitely nice to be able to see whether it was on a bad note to kind of get to know more about the Steve Kerr character. And the fact that I learned today is, Steve Kerr is the only NBA player in the last 50 years to win four straight NBA championships because after he left the Bulls in 98, he was on the he Spurs, to, right? He was, yeah. on, he was on the Spurs and he ended up winning a championship there too. So, you know, that guy's a yeah. winner. And yeah. uh, I think one of the craziest that. things they said too in that family was uh, his parents were super strict. Um, his mother ended up becoming a professor after she was, you know, she was a full-time mom for a while and they ended up being a professor. They said from Monday to Thursday, there was no TV in the house. Unless there, was a big game Unless there was a big game, the dad always came through. He's like, dad always came through when there was a big game. He always made sure to put it on. Um, so, you know, him and Steve, they had, a, they had a great connection. It was just, you know, unfortunate and kind of awful to hear how, you know, how it all happened with, with his father things, there. It's things like that that resonate with me, too, because there was times in my life that, like, if a Monday night football game was on and you were a young kid and your team was playing, like – you know, my mom would go to bed and, you know, and my dad stay up late on a school night. Well, no, but I like, I would pretend to go to bed early. And then I knew that the, I knew the old man was going to come get me at like eight 45 and shovel me downstairs. And we were going to sit up till as, as late as I could stand it and, and watch that game. So, you if know, I only never found out about that. She'd kill you. <laughs> you know, it is what it is, but like that, that's the kind of moments that you live for. And yeah. for Kerr, like you said, like his mother took on more of a fundamental role uh, going up because she was a stay-at-home mom. Uh, I don't know mm-hmm. if the father passing made her want to have to work or do whatever she needed to do she, at that I point. I think they said that before that, he, she, she ended up becoming a professor before he even passed. Yeah. So she was working at that time anyways. But we saw how everything, you know, between him and Jordan, his relationship and um, all unfolded in that, uh, in that 97 finals, you know, culminating in that game-winning shot. Um which is – and that just goes to show you, too, how smart both of those players are because um, they kind of broke down that play, how they – Jordan had run that play earlier, and when he went left, he knew earlier in that series Stockton came over and double-teamed. 
Um, and he remembered exactly. And Curry, you can hear him say straight right in the huddle, he's like, if he comes off, I'll be ready to shoot it. And, and of course, what happens, he goes left, Russell's in front of him, Stockton comes over to double team. Michael splits it and kicks it right to Kerr for that open jump shot. Um, and, that, right at the foul and, that, line. Yeah, and, that, and that was just like, that just goes to show you how smart of a basketball player Michael Jordan was and how great he was because he had to face everything. Mm-hmm. And anytime he had any sort of slip up, like that stuck with him. So like you're talking about, that was game one, Stockton comes over for that double team. And, and it was a funny reaction Kerr gave because – He's like, Michael was so smart because he knew that the cameras were always on him 24-7. So he's sitting there. He's got a Gatorade. Uh, a Gatorade he's like covering his mouth. <laughs> and Kerr's like, I got you. If he comes over, yeah, I got you. the ball and I'm going to hit it. Like, you know, you know? Yeah. so like, yeah, that's just the way it was. And, and another part about that series uh, going into the Jazz series now was obviously there was always going to be a matchup assignment for Michael. And that one was Byron Russell. And we'll go back to the chip on the shoulder thing. What happened mm-hmm. was when he retired, he ran into, he ran into a, a, a Carmelone uh, jazz practice and Byron Russell went up and started giving him the business. Like, he's like, Oh, why are you retiring? Like, you know, like, you know, you don't, want, like, you don't want this smoke. And it was like, even at that time, Michael's not even thinking about basketball anymore, but as he called it, he's like, but that day, Byron Russell made the list. Like he made the list and it's just so perfect too, because he already had a scouting report ready for him. Like, he's like, I know that he plays on the front of his toes. I know that, like, all you got to do is you can shake him both ways, and he's just going to be flying each and other way. And, yeah, it's just it, it's just another great moment. Dude, the crazy thing is, too, like, all the other players in the NBA knew. Like, Malone's like, no, no, Mike. Mike, don't listen to him. He's just a young guy. He, he doesn't know. He's just a young buck. He doesn't know yet. Like, he literally struck fear into the, uh, the whole league. Like, not to get on the, you know, LeBron Jordan debate again, but I saw, you know, Chris Broussard today um, he was, was on First Things First, and he's saying, you know, the way LeBron ran through the Eastern Conference and the way he made that Eastern Conference just look so weak and he won so many games in a row and, and went to the finals so many years in a row, Michael Jordan did that to the whole NBA. Western Conference, Eastern Conference, like everybody feared him the way the Eastern Conference was fearing LeBron, you know, and – um, it was just, you know, everybody was scared and everybody who was talking trash was like, just don't do it to the guy. But then again, like we've seen in this documentary, even if you don't talk trash, he just finds the littlest thing to kind of get him into that, that zone where he needs to be in, where he's just all out, step on your throat, win at all costs mentality. You know, even if it's like the Byron Russell talking trash or the one where he made it up, uh, the story about the guy with the, uh, who was the guy with the 34 points on him? We've never heard oh, the story some, before. It was some wizards, ball. yeah, it was some. Yeah, wizards, like that that guy, out, like out he just back, he, yeah. he's like, like the guy said the good game to him, which never happened. Michael just completely made it up. Um, and then the George Carl not saying hi thing, which is like the smallest thing, like you didn't say hi, so what? And then he's like, oh, that's right, you're not gonna say hi to me. All right, now you're gonna get get the business. You know what I mean? He just found a way to to get in that that different zone. It was it was just crazy the way he went about things. I think I saw a great interview today it was with BJ Armstrong. And the question was like, do you wish that you were on that second part of the three P and he goes, honestly, he's like, he's like, I was just proud of Mike and Scotty. I knew how hard that first three Pete was, but knowing how different they had to be the second time around. And why I say that is because as you get older and that's, this is with any athlete, you're not going to be able to jump as high as those young guys anymore. You're not going to be able to move mm-hmm. as quick, you know? And so you need to be smarter. And, and that's what he was 
Like he was, mm-hmm. and we, we can talk about that play in game game six that that turns around and wins them an NBA championship. It's it's just things that like after a while, like he could just go into the his brain. He completely and... changed his game from his early years to the that last three P. Like you would see in the in the eighties and the late eighties, early nineties, he was attacking the rim, dunking on players. Um and then later on, uh, where he was not as athletic, he could still get to the rim. Don't get me wrong; he was still, you know, getting his dunks in. But when he wasn't as a, as athletic, he turned into one of the best post players that we've ever seen. If he got you on the block, it was you know the patented fadeaway or an up and under. You know, he'd get you on your feet on a pump fake. He'd draw contact. He found different ways to score the basketball as he got older, and he was able to change his game um, to suit his you know athletic ability as he got older as well. And I think we talked about yesterday, like we wanted to go more into the flu game, like how that actually that operation went. And and that dude, how crazy is that though? Like but the so, pizza? AKA Pizza Gate. <laughs> yeah. Only one only one place in town that's open and he's the only one that eats a pizza. And I think w- w- the more alarming thing was that five guys showed up to deliver that one pizza. Now five dudes. W- so we can say it one way or the other. Like, why is there five guys showing? Well, if they knew Michael Jordan was there, they probably wanted to see Michael Jordan. Um, but we're going to turn around, and now we're going to swing at that. It's food poisoning. Well, Vernon Maxwell came out. I saw a tweet last night when this was going on. Vernon Maxwell came out, and he's like, this is the reason why I don't eat the food in Utah. <laughs> like, I feel like this is a known thing for NBA players, the fact that he was saying that. And let's not be – let's be real here. Like, and we can even say it to this day, like, Utah has some very, very disingenuous people as far as fans go. I mean, we've seen them get into many different weird shouting matches with fan uh, players, like with Russell Westbrook in the last couple of years and whatnot. I don't, and obviously being a Boston guy, like I know that there's some racist comments that's come out from fans that don't really. Dude, there's racist comments everywhere, dude. Which is true, but I mean, like, you know, you know how it casts certain shadows on certain markets just because one stupid person. I get it. I get it. But those fans, those fans were really all into it. And I think they even showed Jordan's kids that the Jordan's kids weren't even allowed to go to those games just because of how mm-hmm. uh, raucous that environment truly was. I just stay at home in the basement and watch the game. So the flu game was by far, I mean, I think he scored 38. Yep. If, if I was corrected and, you know. No, he, you're he, right. He scored 38. He needed they, he needed every one of those thirty eight because like I said the other day it came down to John Stockton needing two free throws and he ended up missing uh, the front end which ended up causing them to gain a three two advantage and then eventually go back to Chicago and claim their fifth championship. Yeah, and that's crazy too. One of the things that I, I found out and I didn't know this either was Jerry Sloan had no idea Jordan was sick in that game until the box score at the end where he was looking at him, and he's in the post game presser and he's like. I mean, who and who knows if that's believable or not? Like, did he really not know? I mean, there's no obviously there's no social media back then, and you know, but you got to assume that the reporters knew pregame that Michael wasn't feeling good. It was all over the broadcast, the TV broadcast. Um, so you just got to think that um, there was some some way somehow that he would he would know that and to use that in the game plan, whatever it was, attack Michael on the defense when he's on defense. Attack Michael, make him play defense, um, get him tired. Um, do what you got to do to get him out of his rhythm. Um, but, you know, as you saw, he was able to will his team to victory with 38 points. And and um, like you said, man, they, they move on from there. And, you know, we go into a game, uh, game six, I believe it was, which is what we talked about, which was the curse shot. Um, they win that. And the best thing, too, I, I love about the, uh, the game seven, uh, I'm sorry, the 97 championship parade was uh, 
when Kerr gets up there on the podium and he's speaking and he's like, you know, the other night when we were in the huddle, Phil Jackson drew up a play and he said, Michael, we're going to get the ball to you. And Michael said, you know what, Phil? I don't feel comfortable in these situations. I think we should get the ball to Steve. And everybody was just losing it, man. It was one of the cool, coolest moments that, that I saw and everybody was laughing. And, you know, even the MJ was laughing, a guy you don't really see laughing too much. And, um, you know, it was good to see that and the camaraderie that those guys actually had. Well, I think it was the last thing that he said was, well, I guess I'm just going to have to bail out Michael again. Yeah, I was going to have to bail out Michael again. That's my and story, yeah, and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> you know, that, that was a great line. And, yeah, I mean, that was their fifth championship. And then, you know, and I, and like we thought, like uh, a few episodes, like they kind of did exactly what we thought it was going to be. It was going to highlight that Pacers game and then the 97 finals. And then it was leading into the 98 finals in episode 10 and basically the closure that we all wanted and talked about yesterday uh, occurring. So we pop into uh, the 98 finals and that was actually a much better jazz team. I think they swept the Western conference finals that year and they were basically, they were waiting on that bulls, Indiana Pacers matchup for a while. So you had a very, you had a very bewildered uh, Chicago team coming in and not only coming in, but they had to actually go to Utah to begin that series. And I said it to you earlier, um, you see Jordan on the bus and he's, and he's kind of bopping around, you know, and, and they're like, what are, you listening to? what are you listening to? And he's like, he's like, I'm listening to that new Kenny Lattimore and that, and that is not out yet. And he's like, and yeah, I, that's my friend. He's like, I know people. That's my friend. I had no idea. Listen Ken, to this yet. I had no idea who Kenny Lattimore is. And I know how like most people get revved up there listening to like, like Jay-Z Nas, like, you know, doing stuff like that. And I, and I look up Kenny Lattimore and it is the softest R and B music that I've, Ever heard. I think the first song I was actually from the Lion King soundtrack, and I had no idea that he even. Dude, Kenny Lattimore just sounds like a smooth like R and B name. I and I was like sitting there, and I was like, "How is somebody like Keith Sweat?" Bop, you know what I mean? Like this, <laughs> listening to that, and you said it mellowed him out, like it did that, and it, it was kind of a testament. To it did way. mellow him out. But but it also goes to a testament of what Jordan actually had became later in his career. It was a guy that found pleasure in playing the piano you know, slugging a couple beers before the game, you know, anything that he could do to get himself to bring himself down into a, a zone that didn't get him all worked up. And, and like I said, with most players, like I feel like it's a different attitude. And for Jordan, it just wasn't that way. Yeah. Back then too, in that 90, in that 98 finals, um, as it, as it showed, you know, the series started in Utah, Utah was the better team record wise that year. Um, but I thought, you know, going to that, that would benefit the Bulls because back then the finals was that 2-3-2 two, two format. So you had the two games at home in Utah, three in Chicago, and then the last two in Utah. Utah wins game one. Bulls win game two. When they got that split, it's like, okay, we get three games in Chicago. We have a chance to win the series in Chicago now. Game three is one of the most lopsided games ever in the history of the finals. I believe it was, what, 96 to 54? Uh, which they looked at the box score. They showed Jerry Sloan. He's like, is that the actual score? Like, it was just embarrassing for Utah. Like, they shouldn't even have, you know, they was, shouldn't even have I mean, up to the so game. It was so embarrassing that it was, like, almost like a regular season game, like, where they were trying to get everybody in the score sheet by the end of yeah. it. Like, I think the comment like, at the end was, like, the only one that hasn't scored yet is Bill Whittington. <laughs> yeah, and they shoot this ugly jumper from the, from, from the yeah, wing. Yeah, like with, like, six seconds on the clock. It's like, you know, about, it's, it's like a high school kid coming off the bench, and he's just, they're up. The team's up 50, and he's just going and trying to it's score all, as much as they yeah. can. 
it's only game three of the finals. And I think Costa said it be, uh, best in the shot clock era, 54 points is the lowest scoring amount in the history of the game. Yeah. And we're talking about the NBA finals. Show some so, class, Chicago. So, Unbelievable. Running up so the score. Most, yeah. And so in most finals and in most situations and anything, like a demoralizing loss like that, it kind of compounded into game three. I think game three was a lot close. Uh, game four was a lot closer. Game four was a lot closer. Um, but give credit to the Jazz. Like game game four, they lose. It was closer. They battled back. Um, and then game five, the stage is set. Trophies in the house. Confetti's ready to go. And the Bulls just they lay an egg. Credit Utah. They came out. They fought. They played hard. Malone had an unbelievable. I think he had like thirty nine that game. I mean, they, they lay an egg. They, they lost by two. And it came, I mean, down, it came down to a Jordan. Like, you lose Jordan in a chance to win. My my laying an egg. I would say. I mean, it was competitive. But laying an egg. Basically, I'm saying like you have a chance to win your championship at home. And obviously everybody would have preferred winning in Chicago as opposed to having to get on the plane and fly out to Utah and, and, and uh, you know, play another game in, in Utah at that altitude and stuff like that. Have a pizza, get food poisoned. And again, who knows what's going to happen in game six before it actually happens. Uh, but then obviously we get the game six and. Um, well, we, we got a great, we got a great quote in that, in that game from Jordan too. And it's the whole which one, idea. which, which game six or game, which game, game five, game five. Game five. And it was mm-hmm. it was about like the attitude of how like people treat certain big moments. And we can say it even as a kid growing up, like you're in your driveway and you're you're counting down the clock and you're trying to hit a buzzer beater. And you're always thinking about that time that you might step to that line and you gotta hit two free throws to send that game into overtime, or you're gonna get the ball at the buzzer and you're gonna take a shot. And his direct comment was why am I ever going to worry about missing a shot that I haven't taken yet? And I think that's the attitude that a great player needs to have at all times, Mm -hmm. because if you're already in your own head, you've already lost, you've already missed that shot. And he was always about the next shot. And I think that's what defined him. That's what separated him. And, and just another moment that makes, makes him the goat. Yeah, I agree. And that's like, like, again, not to get back to like, obviously everything has turned into MJ versus LeBron, but like, I think that's one of the reasons why late-game situation, LeBron's – he's, like, scared to go to the basket. You don't see him really drive. He shoots a lot of mid-range and pull-ups and stuff like that because I think he truly knows that free throws are his weakness. He's nervous about it. Like, ahead of time, he's nervous, you know, and he doesn't want to get that contact and have to go to the line in that situation. So, um, You saw that with Rondo as a Celtics fan. After a while, yeah. Rondo, did, Rondo did not want to even go to the hoop anymore. Yeah. And Rondo can't shoot a jump shot, so if Rondo's not going to shoot the jump shot – and he's not going to go to the hoop anymore. Like his game basically becomes one dimensional at that point. Yep. So he's only you know. an assist guy at that point. So, uh, so after game five, obviously we get to game six um, and game six, right off the bat, Scotty goes up for a jam. He gets hurt uh, pregame. You could see they were working out his back. It was, you know, kind of a prior injury. They're trying to loosen him up and whatnot. And he goes up for a dunk. It wasn't a hard dunk. He kind of, you know, hung on the rim a little bit, but pulls his back and you could just see how much it affected him throughout that game. He was laboring. Um, and you know, I said, you know, everybody's like, everybody's like, hey, Jordan's never won a final without without Pippen. And I tweeted last night, I was like, well, yeah. you watch game six because he won that game without Pippen. <laughs> yeah, but I'll, I will say this though like, the fact that we had a camera crew for that whole season that actually gave Scotty, in my opinion, way more credibility because as much pain as he was in. Yeah. He was heading back to the locker room, getting work done just to be able to come out for those six and even just first. to be out there and be a, and even just to be out there to be a decoy. Like regardless and, of Scottie Pippen is hurt, he's you gotta account for him when he's on the court. 
And for somebody that was in that state, like he was somewhat effective down the stretch. He made a couple buckets. He made a couple yeah. defensive rebounds. Mm-hmm. Um, he did whatever he needed to do. And for somebody that we saw earlier in, in the, uh, the series where we questioned a couple of his motives and, 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 and back in that, uh, that series against the Knicks, not wanting to go in and knowing that Scotty was already fed up about his contract and already the sit out earlier in the season, that kind of like gave Scotty a lot more credibility in the end, knowing that like he was willing to do whatever it needed to do at that point, because let's be real. Yeah. Like, if they if they don't get through game six, that back injury is not getting better by game seven. And that's no. just another factor. And that in game seven, that's anybody's game. And that's just another factor that we talked about with that question yesterday, the hypotheticals. Like, if they get to game seven knowing what you know now, and you didn't really know how bad that Scotty uh, Pippen injury was, like, who knows if they're able to get through game seven. Yeah, there's, a, a, there's a good chance they don't play. win that. Utah's obviously got yeah. all the momentum at that point. They won game five and game six, and then you go into game seven, they got all the momentum. Scotty's hurt. It would have took an unbelievable Michael Jordan 45-point, 50-point performance for them to probably win that game. You know, so uh, – but coming down the stretch of of, uh, of game six, um, I believe uh, it was Stockton who hits a shot and he puts the uh, puts the Bulls up – I'm sorry, the Jazz up by, uh, by three points uh, with 41 seconds left to go in the game. And I've talked about this before. And I think this is the greatest 41 seconds that any player has ever had in, in the NBA and what really sets Michael Jordan apart and just shows his greatness as a basketball player on both ends of the floor. Um, you know, it kind of breaks everything down. They obviously need a quick bucket with 41 seconds. Pippen inbounds it to him. He gets the ball and right away he attacks. You know, three guys swiping at the ball. He gets a layup. On the other end, he comes down. He knew before they were going to uh, Malone a lot in the post. They were running the play in the post. So when – Jordan's guy went to clear baseline. Jordan never stayed with his guy. He actually turned around and Malone's back was to him. And Jordan, just the smart that he had, he knew Malone wasn't going to really know he was there. Malone was going to expect him to clear with his guy that he was guarding. And he swipes the ball and steals it from Malone um, and comes back down court. And this is the funniest thing. Everybody was like, even Dennis Rodman was like, you know, what were you thinking at that point? And he's like, just get the hell out of the way. He's like, there's no way Michael wasn't, you know, John Paxson had his shot. Steve Kerr had his shot. He's like, there's no way Michael's passing this ball. I just needed to get, to get the hell out of the way. And, of course, the shot everybody remembers, a little pat on the butt to Byron Russell crossover um, shot to win the game. And even though, you know, a lot of people are like, oh, it's a push off, it's offensive fall. Like, you can see from that reverse angle, it actually really doesn't look like he's even give, gives much of a, any contact to, to Russell and that it was a lot of his uh, momentum that was pushing him one way. A lot of you guys think I'm going to be um, a homer, like a big Jordan fan. Um, but it actually, in the reverse angle, seeing that shot, it looks like the, the contact was pretty minimal. No, like Bob Costa said, he looked like a mater D. Yeah. You know, pull, pulling out the flag from the bull, and and he just kind of lost his balance and he could buy. And that, I mean, he even said. I love it, when they like, asked MJ about it, when they're like, hey, was it a push off? He's like, no, no definitely not a push off. And uh, I mean, the comment was like, he, he, he felt like he could do either or. He could go to the hoop on him, or he could find a little separation to hit the jump shot. So. Either way, Byron Russell was going to get the business no matter what in that situation. And I've always thought it was a push-off, but from that back in, that back uh, view that we saw, I definitely think that uh, it gave way more credibility to that finish. And for a guy that scored 45, he needed all 17 of that those points that he scored in the fourth quarter to be able to get the Bulls over that hump. Mm-hmm. And it came down to a Stockton three that almost went in. Um, and I don't even Dude. know if that was a. I don't even know if that was a great. I- 
what can give you a competitive edge in today's red-hot housing market? Rocket can. That's because Rocket Mortgage can give you a verified approval. It could help your offer stand out. Rocket technology provides a rock-solid verification of your income, assets, and credit, giving sellers greater confidence in you. Go to rocketmortgage.com or call us today at 8338-ROCKET. A verified approval is based on an underwriter's analysis of your individual financial information, appraisal, and title report. Call for cost information and conditions equal housing under license in all 50 states and MLS Consumer Access Network number 3030. The one thing I think about what you talked about, you know, what Utah did was there was five point, I think 5.2 seconds left or 5.3 seconds left. Like, you can get a better shot. Oh, like, yeah. you only need two points. You only got one point. Like, you can get a way better shot than what Stockton got. The, the idea, just yeah, but the, no, but I, I looked into this more. The idea of it was that the hope was that if they could get a good look quick, they had a chance to get an offensive rebound. And if they didn't get the offensive rebound, they could still commit a foul. They still had a timeout yeah. left, and they could still advance the ball back and still get another shot to either be down two or be down three to get themselves to get a chance to get into overtime or even potentially win the game if it's still a two-point game. So when yeah. I heard that, I understood it more. And like I said, I mean, most of the time in that series, John Stockton came up big and hit a couple big shots for them down Huge the line. Shots. So, he had big shots throughout his career. And it's not like I'm ever going to question the IQ level of John Stockton when it comes to a basketball moment. So no. if, if he, but I, I will question the fact of, and it was funny because if we go back to the 97 series, the jazz don't even get a shot off uh, with a chance to tie in game six, Byron Russell throws the ball away and it goes in and yeah. it flashes forward to 98 season and Byron Russell's throwing the ball. in again, as soon as the referee gives him that ball, the ball was out. Like it was yeah, like a moment, he got it right like, away. Where, like, I'm sure, I'm sure yeah. he thought about that. And yeah, when Kerr hit the walk. shot, he just throws it in, and Pippen stole it right away. Yeah, Jerry, Jerry, like I don't even know if he wanted it in the ball to inbound the ball after that, but I just thought it was funny just to see his personal reaction and and seeing and seeing how that the uh, the whole uh, events happened. And uh, yeah, Bulls end up winning uh, their sixth championship, and we get to see the awesome locker room footage of that situation after, which was pretty good. And is Carl Malone the the greatest loser of all time in terms of just like going on the bus after the game and congratulating and just shaking everyone. his hand and everything like that dude i feel bad for malone like you got the mvp is like but in my eyes man carl malone is he's one of the greatest power forwards i think he's i mean it's, i think it's like tim duncan kevin garnett's up there barkley malone like those four guys are like the epitome of what you want to be in a power forward um you know it's tough those are the players that as a basketball fan you would love to see at least get that one championship well, I mean, he tried. He went to the Lakers to try to build that super team <laughs> he did. later on. I think, yeah. I think it was Col- Kobe, uh, Carl, Shaq, GP. Yeah, and Gary Payton. Yeah. You know, and they, Gary they Payton is, though. He actually ended up getting the championship with the Heat later, a little bit later on in 2006, but Malone just never came through. That was that Pistons squad. Do you think that championship matters to a guy, though, like Gary Payton, knowing that he wasn't the focal point? And, and, like, yeah, knowing, I think like, it does. I mean, he was getting minutes. I mean, he was playing – yeah, but limit, you know I mean, I'm he saying? wasn't the superstar that he was anymore, but, yeah, you know, but he was still getting like, valuable not, minutes. Yeah, but it's not your team. Like, I, I'm sure no. a championship with Seattle would have meant a lot more. To yeah, but you think, Robert, kinda, you think that Robert Ory's mad that he's got seven rings? That's different. We're talking about a Hall of Famer that, like, is considered one of the one of the top 50 basketball players of all time. I, In my opinion, he is. And, oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, he's one of the, he's one of the best defensive guards of all time. You know, so I mean, yeah, like you can jump on a squad at the end of your career and and kind of coattail somebody else into into a into a championship ring. But for me, like I don't think it matters that much 
if you are the guy to want to be that focal point when you've been there, especially if he was able to take down Jordan and the Bulls. Like, that would always – That would have been huge, yeah. He would obviously would rather have that championship as being, you know, especially taking down Jordan and the Bulls. He would have loved to have that. You know, but I think – and you want to be the guy, but I think guys just want to – they just want to – they want to ring. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the career, I can understand it, like, trying to find it. But I, I don't think he, he ever just goes around saying to myself, like... Thanks for tuning in, Kamara. We are reading the comments I'm, as we I'm go. Reading, I'm I'm the champion. Hey, Matt, nice to hear from you. Yeah, like, you know, I just don't think it matters that much. I mean, it's nice to get a championship, but I just don't think it mattered that much to him at that point. So, yeah, that's kind I of where I was at that. Yeah, no, I hear you. Um, so, like you said, man, we see the celebration after... I uh, love the hotel footage of him playing the the, the piano. And then there's like, get that Zen Buddha bullshit out of here. And he's just talking. He's having fun with the guys, smoking his pat and his cigar. Um, and then it gets into, you know, kind of how, like, what we were talking about. Um, how well, we were we talking talk, about. Can we talk about Phil Jackson for a moment? Well, that's what I was going to get in. I was actually going to get into that. And it gets into, well, what part I, of Phil I, Jackson? I was going to get about, how, get into like how it ended kind of and how we kind of got that closure with Phil and, and everything. But yeah, go ahead. Well, bring your point well, up. What, wanna, do you want, what do you want to talk about? So we know Phil's the Zen master, right? And I yes. thought the operations that he was able to do, like in practice, bring teams together, um, the certain things that he was able to, like that, that Zen thing that we always knew about him was what kept that team together. But that guy had a fiery emotion, like in the C- middle. Come here, go watch the last dance before you watch this. We're ruining a, it for you. He had a fiery emotion in the middle of games that that I just didn't really expect. Like he would cut it straight with you. Like he would come right yeah. after you. He would say, he would say some pretty, like like rude things in a huddle that I just didn't think that's the way Phil Jackson yeah. acted. You know, it was very very direct, and. Yeah. Which is crazy that you say that because he was very direct, but we saw with guys like, um, we kind of skipped over this, but we saw with guys like Dennis Rodman, he had such a uh, short, uh, a long leash with him. He he let Dennis do his thing. Like in the middle of the finals, you're missing practice to go in the, you know, to go wrestle. Like you could get injured. You could get hurt. You could miss games. Like, and he's like, he's okay with it. Like Dennis comes back and it's just like the team finds you, whatever. It feels like, all right, you're back in the lineup. Like, are you, are are you a wrestling fan? I was back in the day. I don't really watch you know, it anymore. Do you know, you know, back the then, NWO the NWO was. and the Wolfpack. What? The, you yeah, know, the New World know. Order. Oh yeah. Yeah. So like, once you're you, once you're in the NWO, like that's forever. Like you know what I'm saying. So like that's a like as Hulk says, like that's above everything. That's the only thing that matters at that. The time. bloodline. <laughs> but that's what it was with Phil. Like he was such a player's coach, and I think after when you have that championship DNA and that formula, and you know what works. I mean, we saw it early on with the Vegas trip. You know, he knew that he was always going to get 110% out of Dennis on the court at all times anyway. So, like, you kind of had to let Dennis be Dennis. And I think it's a peculiar time to make that trip into the into the wrestling forum and do all that. But, you know, it's just another another Dennis Rodman moment that, you know, you just kind of chalk up and be like, yeah, that is so Dennis. That's that's how how you're going to get the best out of him is just to let him let off steam. Yep, absolutely. So. God, you can get into what yeah. you're talking about. Yeah, so I was going to say, like, it's glad, like, we had talked about, like, we were excited to see, like, you know, the closure and kind of how everything ended. And, you know, does it, do they just leave or do there meetings with, with teams and uh, players and owners or coaches and owners? Like, how did it all go down? And it comes to find out that Reinsdorf actually called Phil and offered him a one-year contract to stay. Um, and he actually turned it all down. 
Um, he said that Phil earned the right, even though, you know, Krause had said earlier that, you know, 82 and 0, you're not coming back, you know, all that, that Stuff. But uh, Reinsdorf said he had earned the, yeah, I know you're not a big, you know, you're, you're, no, you're we're going to disagree on this ending. I That's fine. That. That's fine. But, you know, okay, he got into it and, and Phil said he didn't want to come back. And, and then it goes into, uh, you, know, you know, Michael saying that he never had a meeting with Reinsdorf at that time. They never got together to explain why it was actually breaking up. And they actually showed him the footage of Reinsdorf uh, for the first time saying like what was happening and, you know, Reinsdorf said the reason it really all broke up was contracts, people's value in the market they weren't going to get, you know, with the Bulls. Pippen was obviously requiring, you know, tons of money. Dennis was going to get more on the market than what the Bulls were willing to give him. Um, Kerr, all these guys, you know, and then Michael comes out. He's like, he's like, that's bullshit, man. He's like, if, if I talked to these guys, if we had a meeting, I could have got everybody to come back. You know, Steve Kerr would have signed a one-year deal. Rodman would have signed a one-year deal. Um you know, Michael was even on one-year deals at the end of his career. You know, he was taking a one-year deal. The only guy he said it would have took convincing was uh, was Pippen, was Pippen, because um, obviously he was way underpaid. They would have to restructure. He ended up getting in his next over his next six years between Houston and Portland, he was getting seventy-five million, which is way more than what he made with the Bulls. Uh, but MJ, like you said, the relationship that they had, he was he had no doubt in his mind that he could convince Pippen to come back. Pippen's not going to, after all they've been through for the last three years, Pippen's not going to miss out on a chance to go for number seven, you know, and that's how well, Michael I mean, really felt. So I think that caught him by surprise, you know, what was uh, said by Ryan Storm. I mean, we can, we can argue about this all day. When Michael came back in the league, he was on one-year deals and he was making- Thanks, Lai. I appreciate that, brother. He was making $30 million a year per season at that point. Uh, so we can get into- the financial aspects of it, but Kerr was only making $1.7 million a year on his deal. So like re-signing mm -hmm. Steve Kerr would not have been a big deal. The Dennis Rodman thing wouldn't have been a big deal. So the Scottie Pippen was the only real factor that probably would have came down into it. But what, what we disagreed on, I don't think we disagreed on it, but obviously everybody knew that management was the big factor and why this team wasn't able to move on into a 99 season. But we painted Jerry Krause as that ultimate villain early on in this doc. But what I figured out by the end of it was the ultimate villain was just as I always thought it should be. It was the owner. It's Jerry Reinsdorf. It's the guy that is the one that can pull that switch at any time. Because just remember, like Jerry Krause works for, for Reinsdorf, so he has to do what he wants to do. And if he financially didn't want to pay these players to come back or didn't want to do anything like that. And I know mm -hmm. from watching baseball as uh He's the Chicago White Sox owner, and he, that's always been a big uh, issue with that organization is he's not willing to pay players in that sport either. Reinsdorf was willing to cash it in. And if Kraus, had, Kraus was told that he needs to be able to make these, the, these moves, he's got to think about his career four or five years down the line past these guys. So if he's not going to get the like, – come on, man. Like, if, if you have – if you're the GM of the Chicago Bulls, like you have the easiest job in the world. If your owner's willing to pay the players, you can keep those guys going for as long as you want to do. Like he doesn't need to yep. separate them. I know that it seemed like he was going behind closed doors and he was getting meetings with yeah. Tim Floyd and whatnot. But just remember, like that's what happened to Doug Collins when they forced him out at the beginning to bring Phil Collins uh, or to bring or Phil or, Jackson, to bring Phil Jackson in too. Like this is the way yeah. that it went. It was, it was a business decision. And, Kraus was the one, a dead man that we were just kicking while, while it, like he was done and he was just following direct orders. And I think Jerry Krause's only flaw was 
he just wanted some respect. Like, and yep. he got his banner that says it, but... He got his banner it's hanging in the United Center. He, do, he doesn't get raises. Like, he's never going to get anything besides just credit. And that's all he, yeah. that's all he truly was, uh, his issue was. Like, you can say that management was a big deal, but at the end of the day, if Reinsdorf wanted those guys back, yeah. Kraus would have gave them one-year contracts no matter what. That's not his decision to say, like, yeah, Jerry, you're wrong. Like, I think you should do it this way. Like, he was just following direct yeah. orders. So I do agree with, like, you know, like we had, we had talked about this earlier before the show, and, like, it's kind of like an agree in the certain aspects that I disagree with. Like, I do agree that Kraus at the beginning of the documentary, it made him look like, like we were saying, it made him look like the the, the bad guy in, in, the, uh, in the Space Jam movie. He was yeah. the uh, guy on Moron Mountain, you know what I mean? Um, Absolutely. but by he the end like of it, him. he looked exactly like him. Like, like we said, dude, there's no doubt in my mind that that is a mirror image of him. That's who they, uh, branded that character off of. It was Jerry Krause. They molded it right after him. Um, but it, he looked like a complete asshole. And right at the beginning of the documentary, literally from episode one, it was Krause right off the rip, right off the get go. It was his, you know, 82 and 0 Phil Jackson will never bring you back. If you go 82 and 0, all this stuff that went on and through up until last night, he looked terrible, and I think last night kind of showed that Reinsdorf had a huge part into it and actually made Kraus look a little bit better. Now, what I had disagreed with was – what I had disagreed with you with was that Kraus is making decisions on his own as well. Like, he really had a personal vendetta out against Phil Jackson. You know, like I said, you had mentioned the Tim Floyd thing. Like, the whole team gets invited to Kraus's daughter's wedding, including Tim Floyd, but Phil Jackson doesn't. You know, Phil Jackson – at the parade in 98 says, Hey, we really want to thank Krauss for putting his plans on hold and not getting rid of us a year earlier so that we could come back and, and attempt to do this thing. And obviously he's getting booed. So, you know, him and Phil had a lot of animosity towards each other. They, they didn't like each other. Um, obviously it wasn't that way at the beginning. Krauss is the guy who brought Phil on, but over the years, as time went by and Krauss didn't get his respect or what he deserved and his credit, him and Phil's relationship. And a part of that is probably why Phil never took the one year deal that Reinsdorf offered him was because he didn't well, want to work they, for Kraus. No, you know, it wasn't that. He didn't want to have a rebuild. Like, it, the, first of all, the, those players were never going to get a, a one-year contract. The idea, though, was they weren't going to get rid of Phil Jackson if he was still wants to be a coach. But Phil didn't want to coach a loser. He wanted to He wanted to take a couple of years off and get, I think, eventually the Lakers job. It's crazy he, that he, he misses did. one year. He misses the lockout season, and then he just wins three championships in a row. I mean, granted, yeah, cool being Shaq. But, but we, we see it in this day and age, like, coach-GM relationships – are what is important to the organizations that make them go. And we see it with the Celtics all the time. Like Danny Ainge has only won a one championship in the last 15 years, but yet he's so revered around here and all he's really done besides bringing the big three here and then getting, and then trade uh, raping uh, the next, like he really hasn't really done anything crazy. I mean, whip gives him a, a lot of rope financially to be able to do what he needs to do. He's able to go out there and, and scout He's got a great relationship with Brad. You know, they're, they're, they're a championship organization, but they haven't produced a championship since 08. So, mm -hmm. and that relationship is way better. And I think that's kind of like where Kraus was. Like, while Phil was the architect of, of what made the Bulls great, like, Kraus was the one that had to bring everybody together with contracts. He had to go out and get Tony Kukoc. They had to convince Scotty early on to take that terrible deal because, like we talked about, mm -hmm. like, if they don't get that terrible deal from Scotty, they're not able to have the roster flexibility to be able to add those pieces later on to those rosters. If you turn around and you have to pay Scotty what he's owed, 
like that run, those runs are a lot harder because you're not able to bring in those certain veterans like Rodman, Kerr, to be able to make the team work. Ron Harper, you know, so I think from a standpoint, like we hated, we hated Jerry Krause, but at the end of the day, like guy produced six championships. It's hard not to argue that he's not one of the best yeah. GMs, if not the best GM in NBA history. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. So think about that. So a guy that turns around and wants just some credit, and we're sitting here discrediting him, Great bringing, point, that organization, bringing that organization to a, down, like we're now talking about him being in that light of being a top GM of all time. So I think when I listened to Toll and the producer early on, and he was like, listen, we didn't want to smother Jerry Krause even more in, his, in what people thought. We actually wanted to bring more life to actually him not being what people always thought he was. And I thought that at the end was finally what we saw when Ryan started, because Jordan never knew anything about that. They didn't want any conversation to know why that those, those contracts were never drawn up or why they didn't continue on. And I think that hit him. I think knowing that Jerry Reinsdorf was the one that ultimately decided that he just didn't want to do it. He wanted to cash in on what he had already earned from that those, yep. those Bulls teams. Because I yeah. think Stern said it best, right? Like with Michael Jordan in 92, the NBA was in 80 countries. By that 98 season, the NBA was in 235 countries at that point. Yeah, you know, huge. so He's a global so, icon. He's the biggest reason. So the bull, the Bulls were an international success. Yeah. We're not even talking about a United States. We're talking about a global success. So the amount of money that organization was raking in yeah. is just bananas. Yeah, and like I said, we don't like I don't disagree on everything you're saying. Like my thing is like I don't knock Cross's ability to get players. Like when they got rid of Horace Grant and you knew they needed that rebounder. What they do? They went out and they got Dennis Rodman, arguably the best rebounder in the game. Like Cross's ability to bring in talent and acquire talent was second to none. He did a great job. He's unbelievable for that. Um, but my only, like I said, the only thing I disagreed with is just to think that he's he's Ransdorf's little puppet and doing whatever he says is just. To that's me, every GM. Uh, that's every GM. Like you are working for the owner. Like, yeah, you're gonna you, work for him, you, but but he's also gonna he's also gonna be able to make decisions on his own. This point, the GMs have to make executive decisions on their own and just be like your your owner has to trust you to make those decisions where you don't have to go to him and be like hey mr ransoff do you mind if i do this can i trade this guy are you okay if i do this like there's there's times where you got to trust your gm to just go and, and make the right move and, and, and for, for and the he, most part he did. did that he did that he did really really good he did for a decade he did that for exactly a decade, and i, I agreed with that and, and i agree with that so game, i i think that people will like get rid of players and stuff like that get rid of players and his thing with Phil Jackson and how he didn't want to bring Phil back was not just Reinsdorf. That was Krause as well. You know what I mean? Your your point of view is you're saying it's just like Krause is Reinsdorf, Reinsdorf's puppet. And it's just like, you're going to do what I say. And yeah, that's you that. don't You don't know, you know for a fact that Reinsdorf didn't want to fill back too. Because the only time that he ever spoke about a contract was after that 98 season when he was willing to Yeah, but to you don't know that he didn't want him back. You don't know if he did or he didn't. Like that's I mean, like – hypotheticals again right like we don't know i'm just saying like odds are though like the ownership is the one that pulls the ultimate strings because they are the ones that write the checks if you're if you're able to like like i said like yes and i i am agreeing with that 
Like, like I'm not saying no, that that's no not way, true. There's no way Jerry Krause wants to make his job harder by getting rid of the best NBA coach of all time and dismantling the best team of all time. Like that just doesn't even make any sense unless the owners are not allowing you to pay the people that the proper money. And like you don't said, think that, you don't think there's any little part of Krause that thought his ego was so big and that he wanted credit that he could he thought he could actually rebuild that team into a contender. Dude, look at that guy. We talked about it earlier. He's not handsome. No one liked him. I mean, like, you know, take, like, so take why, out of his physical, he... take out his physical appearance. Just him, as a pure, just him as a pure basketball mind and how great he, we're, we're, we're even giving him props, man. We're Dude. saying he's great at acquiring talent. You're making we're millions he's of great. dollars, Mark. Why, why do you feel like you want to make yourself have a harder job if you, if it's not necessary? It doesn't make any sense. Like nobody wants, it's like the Bill Belichick thing right now with the Patriots. <laughs> like in my heart, do I think so that you... he's going to be able to put, of the organization back together after losing Gronk and Brady? Like, you don't think that there's any part of Krause that saw the 98 or 97, 98 finals and saw how close, um, as far as games and some of those games were, you know, how they were one shot away from going to a game seven and 98. You don't think he thought, like, possibly this team has fallen apart, rebuild, and he was confident in what he could do as a GM to rebuild and he wanted to take on that challenge? You don't think that's that's possible at all? That team, that team, we talked. Not at all. You don't think that, Mark, that, that you don't think it's anything. they together for a 99 season, that team probably wins another NBA championship. That's tough. What do you mean that's tough? You mean you wanted to make an argument about them winning possibly eight in a row the, yesterday. And now the you're 99 season. So they were, so they were an older team at that point, right? They were an older team at that point. They're playing. It was a lockout season. They're playing. Which would game them? Game? Which no, would it wouldn't them. have. No, it wouldn't have. What are it's you talking less, about? They're, it's they're less older, games, but you're team. playing games in more. T- Listen, they're older team. It's less games, but you're playing more games in a shorter amount of time. They played 50 games in three months. You are. You are. They wrong. packed it all in, and then playoffs. You didn't have as much rest between playoffs. Mark, all you had to do, they didn't care about the one seed at that point. All they had to do was make the playoffs. It didn't really matter where. Mark, we're talking about. A, a Knicks team in 99 that finishes an eight seed that went to the finals. That was trash. Dude, I agree with that. that I was, was just trash. saying, like, you don't think, you don't think that Chicago team could have beat that Knicks team that made it. I do think they could have won. I think they could have okay, won 98. So 99. I won, but I don't think it's, I don't think it's as set in stone as everybody thinks it is. It's harder for an older team with playing so many games in so little time. You don't think it's harder. Like even playoffs, you're playing every other night. They played that, that year. They played a game every other night. Oh. They didn't have rest days like they did. But doesn't matter. You're playing 32 less games in that season. So, like, whether or not you're piling those games on, like, I think that we just we, but you're playing a game one. every other night, dude. But you're the one that's team. talking about Jordan being able to overcome every obstacle that was in his way. So my thing is like Jordan would have been very, very prepared to make sure that his body was ready for that stretch. And not only that, yes, but and I agree. But like that, I said, that, do I I'm think sure they'll win? Yes, got, I'm just trying to make the point that it's not set in stone. It's it would would have been harder. If for them Knicks, to win. If that Knicks team, the eight seed, made it to the finals that year, the odds like you don't are think, that yes, the Knicks team ended up like, looking at the Knicks team ended up making it to the finals. They beat the the, the Pacers. Where well, they beat the Pacers, right? Like the you saw what the Pacers did the year before to them, and the game that they gave. You don't think the Pacers would have been able to give the Bulls a run for the money that year? Probably. Exactly. So that's what I'm saying. Like anything could have happened. That that fucking game in in, in uh, '98 went to a game seven. And the Bulls were losing. It's seven minutes left in the game by double digits. It's just like, crazy to me that a, a, 
yeah, but it's just crazy to me that you didn't want to throw hypotheticals out there. And I'm just saying that it's hard to bet against the Bulls in the 99 season that that they wouldn't have made it to another finals. Like, that's just crazy to me. I so, think I they would have. I just, I think they would have, dude. I'm saying I think okay. they would have. I'm just saying I don't think it's like, like definitely set in stone. There was obstacles that they had to go through. Okay, there's always going to be obstacles. But everything that we saw in this documentary that says that when there was an obstacle in their way, they figured it out. And, dude, are you kidding me? You're taking like a completely different stance. It's exactly what I said about 94, 95 about them winning a championship. And you're yeah, like, but we're going, <laughs> yeah, because we're doing, we're doing a continuance of what we know from that 98 team. That 98 team was an unbelievable team. And so was me, the 93 team. Yeah. But in 98, that Bulls team faced more adversity than any other Bulls team that they had to go through in any championship run. That's a fact, right? Oh, I agree. Yeah. That's definitely and they, a fact. And they, and they, first team and everything. Yeah, and they persevered, right? But and they would have had to deal with all. They would have had to deal with all that same shit the following season. And, and in my opinion, like that Spurs team in '99 was not as good as those Jazz teams in the prior season. So to me, I don't think that that would have been a tough series for them. I, I don't know, man. That's that's who they had nobody. They had nobody that could have could have played defense on on Robinson or Duncan. Okay, but who would have? They wouldn't have had an answer for those guys. There would Michael. There would have been no answer for Jordan. I agree, or Pippen. You know, if he came, if he was fully healthy. I mean, we can do, we can do hypotheticals. Though, though. That's fine. You love That's hypotheticals. Fine. Let's do it. It's what it is. But at the end of the day, we will never know. We'll no. never know. I mean, I'm the biggest. I mean, you know, I'm one of the biggest Jordan fans there is, man. I would have loved to see him come back for another year. I would have loved to see him have a chance at it. I just don't think it, it's set in stone that they would have won. I think it was more set in stone that if he stayed, they would have won in '94 as opposed to '99. I like the ending though. I liked how like they they did the whole thing where they did a barn fire and they they all said something nice about each other and they did a kumbaya moment and you know that that was very Phil Jackson esque you know yeah, to set that up you know so I, I I thought I thought it was like I said the documentary was amazing I mean this has been a great this has been a great ride and the one thing I did say was got some that, fans right now man handed me my the lunch. one thing I will say about it is that. They could have spread this out for ten weeks, right? Like two episodes. Like I'm kind of sad that it's over because it went by. What so were you fast. saying? What were you saying about? Uh, uh, I've never heard anything. You were saying there might be an episode eleven. Are you just busting balls? Where did you hear that? No, I mean, listen. Oh, so now you want my sources? Because you I, question, I mean, I just want to know because I feel like who, I, I was told. I just said who said this, is there going to be an episode eleven? Because I mean, I would love to love to see that. Okay, so. Uh, it was the rich eye. It was, I believe it was the Dan Patrick show. Uh, the director went on and they said, do you have, how much more footage do you have that you weren't able to, and he, and he said that he had at least 80 to 90 more hours of footage that they did not include in any of the stock series. And that they said that like, what else are we doing right now? You know, if there's time to put something together for an episode 11, like maybe some like great stories that are great interviews, you know, maybe things that they didn't, weren't able to get through, because like I said, the, the flow was great. They even had Spike Lee on first take today, and he was like talking about how blown away he was uh, by the documentary. Mm-hmm. Spike Lee uh, wanted and, that documentary. He he was and, one of the, the directors to pitch it, and he didn't go with it. And with Spike Lee, like he said it best. He's like, and this is and this is from a director. He's like, if you want to be the best, you can't be friends with everybody. You can't be the most polite person in the room. And that one yeah. resonated with me as a director because I'm sure I've been on a set and everyone thought I was a huge asshole. You know, but my idea is like I'm trying to produce the best film at all times and like watching this documentary, uh, knowing Michael Jordan, the person um, 
that that was exactly what you need to do to be great. Like you can't you have to be ruthless. And he did it for all the right reasons. And I think that the credibility of the persona of what he is, it, I, I, it was it was awesome. It was it was, awesome. It was a great it was, documentary and it couldn't have come it at a better awesome. time. It was awesome. Yeah, it was fantastic. And I know we thought about this for like, I think they showed the, the previous this like over like 16 months ago. Like we knew this was coming for a while. Um, but I wish they, I kind of wish they did maybe do an episode uh, every Sunday, you know, and they kind of spread this out a little just long. One, just one, one episode, one episode for 10 weeks. What do we to have do? to look forward to? What do we have to look forward this, to now? Listen, the season is, they're making strides, man. The NBA is coming back. Let's just yeah, get ready. Know. July 1st, July 1st, mark my words. You heard it on Hoop Dreams, man. July 1st. July 1st. So, the sources are talking, man. Yeah, so... so. <laughs> So it'll, it'll be yeah, interesting so. to see what happens, man. It was a great documentary. Like I said, we're happy it came out when it did um, because it gave us something to do during this time of quarantine where we're all just sitting inside, uh, not doing much. So um, it was great for, for the sports world to kind of get together for five weeks and to have something to kind of talk about and be, be excited over. They actually had a poll today where they were like, break. obviously we'll go into the LeBron MJ thing. Uh, what each person did great and, Everybody is this the one where LeBron, LeBron won? Jordan. I mean, Michael won every single one. Is that the Jordan's one? not a better passer than LeBron? No, and I say that too. I do agree on that, but I don't All think right. like if Michael Jordan wanted to lead the league in assists, he could have. Like, let's not get that twisted. Michael was great at doing what he did at scoring the basketball, that was his greatest asset. But you've yeah, seen but Michael, Michael Jordan play. Go don't ahead. you think that don't you think LeBron could lead the league in scoring if he really wanted to? Yeah, it goes. I mean, it goes both ways. I agree. But that's my point. Like, like people can like compare apples to oranges, but like, if each of these players wanted to flip flop and and do these other things and be that certain kind of player, that's like, how great both LeBron of them, them are. 30, LeBron could average thirty five a night if he really, really wanted to. Yes, I, I agree. Might with only that. have six or seven assists, but that's not what he's about. But you see, game like you even see highlights of MJ throwing no look passes around the back, just dropping dimes, perfect passes. And everybody's like, "Oh, Michael can't pass." Like, why? Because he didn't. Because he didn't average ten assists a game. He can't pass. Like, as a basketball player, he could pass the ball. He was a good passer. You know what I'm saying? They're just looking at stats wise, saying, "Hey, he didn't average double digit assists, so he's obviously not as good as 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 good as LeBron." So, what was your favorite takeaway from the whole series? My favorite takeaway from the whole series, um, I just honestly loved how it just brought. Because obviously, I've been the one of the biggest Jordan backers there is. I just bought. I just loved how it brought Jordan back kind of into the into the limelight of his of his playing days, because um, a lot of people, obviously younger people, not our generation, but uh, who didn't grow up with Michael, obviously probably never saw him play other than a YouTube video. Um, so they got to actually see what it was like, how his competitive side was, um, how he treated you know his teammates, how he made them work just as hard as he did, um, his competitive edge. You know, even the younger generation you're seeing now is, is flip-flopping. I've, I've heard so many people that are just LeBron guys living in the moment that have completely flipped and been like, Jordan's my goat now, man. He's he's the guy. And and they love his competitive edge and that fire that he has that he brings to, to basketball every day to practice the games because that's something you don't see anymore in the NBA with how everybody's buddy-buddy and, you know, patting each other on the ass and, and you know, all this stuff you know, before games and tweeting at each other. And it's just, you don't have those rivalries anymore. I think my favorite. Well, what about you, man? What do you think? I think it, it, it was that you had the greatest player of all time. And obviously one of the more closed door athletes that I, I can ever remember told the story his way. 
Mm -hmm. know, we got raw, uncut Michael Jordan to a T. We got swear words on ESPN. Like, you know, we've got, we got all, we got, we got interviews from players that did, that weren't a part of puff pieces. Like they gave their honest feelings. We heard everybody like, and I always said it, like my, my favorite part was I could just watch clips of Michael Jordan getting handed the iPad of seeing other people respond to what, what questions they were being asked just to see his reactions, you know, like, so I just felt like only one guy can tell the story. And I thought that it was perfect because we always heard all that time that they were sitting on this footage and he didn't want to release it and didn't, and he didn't know how people would perceive him as a bad guy. And I don't think he was perceived as a bad guy at all. I, I no, and that's that the craziest it, thing is like I like he he came out and he was like I think people are going to change the way they feel about me and they're going to think I'm an asshole. And I don't think the documentary made Michael look like an asshole at all. I think, I think like it was, if it made anybody look worse, it was Pippen. I think it was a lear- I think it was a learning moment. I think people like that are watching from the y- younger generation can grow from that, especially athletes. I think athletes can watch that and understand that if you want to be great at something. You need to dedicate everything, everything of to every it. part of your life to it. Like that. And that's what Jordan did. Like, it didn't matter. We talked about politics earlier on. Like, he didn't want any part of that. And we no. see so many athletes these days getting involved in things that they have no idea what they're talking about or why they're why they're getting involved in those stances. They're just trying Jordan, to use their- Jordan was involved in his craft. He worked on his craft, and that's all that mattered to him. And to hear him talk about it and and do it his way. It was it was worth it. And I think that's why this documentary worked so well. They were able to corner him on questions that you didn't feel like that they would be comfortable cornering him on about his father and the gambling. And he didn't he gave you honest answers. And that's all you could ask for out of the documentary. And I I feel like I hope there's a Patriots one 20 years down the line. I hope I'm alive to see it. And I hope it's yeah. built the same way. It's cool to see it know. because you just want you mean all these other dynasties too. Like I would love to see a documentary on the Lakers, the early 2000s Lakers, um, on the Heat team, uh, the LeBron, D. Wade, Bosch Heat, those first few years, you know, they, they made it to four finals in a row. Like that would have been, you know, what would have happened after the Dallas series with LeBron. Like there's going to be a LeBron documentary. We know that. LeBron's good being in Space Jam. He's been in movies. He's going to. Something's going to go down where, where something's going to happen. So uh, we'll see. Like we said, man, it was great. Uh, we're sad to see it go, but we're looking forward to hopefully some more basketball coming soon uh, with the NBA season possibly resuming. Nothing but good news on that front. So um, you ready to wrap this up, man? I think we covered everything? Yeah, I'm ready to start gambling again. So let's get this basketball season back, okay? Exactly. Thanks, guys, for tuning in, man. Appreciate everybody on the live stream that commented and interacted with us. We really appreciate that. Uh, for all updates with the uh, with the Hoop Dreams podcast, follow myself on Twitter at Hoop Dreams underscore MB and follow Steve. He's at S Lewis five six five six. And we'll be back with another episode next week for you guys. Peace. Make sure you guys get out there and subscribe to the podcast. We're on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, anywhere podcasts are. You can find us. Follow myself on Twitter at Hoop Dreams underscore MB and follow my co-host at S Lewis five six five six. This is our second live episode and we're starting to do the podcast um, live as well on all those platforms, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube. Uh, we do have a new YouTube channel, so make sure you go subscribe to that as well to get notified when we go live and just for some great hoops content in general. Uh, we really love the interaction from fans and, and love when you guys join in and, and debate the topics with us. So, Uh, Make sure you're on the lookout for more live episodes. Um, And until then, make sure you guys always follow your hoop dreams.